Amen. That's, boy, that message is spot on, isn't it? Amen. Amen. Well, we've been dealing with this issue of the second coming. We started last week addressing that specifically, and um, we've been talking about uh, that as well as a number of other things, really, if you think about it. I, I um, just know that we've addressed this issue with the prophets and what they saw, what they didn't see, and how difficult it was for them to recognize and to understand the first coming and light of the second coming and so forth, so on. And uh, we mentioned how the religious leaders basically failed to distinguish those two to the point where when Christ did show up, they rejected him. Now, of course, we have no excuse. We're on the other side of the cross. And we can uh, pick out the prophecies that were fulfilled at Christ's first coming and and uh, the rest we can apply to the second coming. And so we began to do that last week. We talked a little bit about those things, and we also pointed out that there was the testimony of Christ himself concerning this second coming, that he was coming back. He told us that himself. Also, those heavenly beings, and uh, we talked about that some, as well as the apostles themselves. We went to a number of scriptures pointing to how the apostles were telling us that he's going to come back again. And again, he showed up uh, almost 2,000 years ago in the past, and he plans to come back again, and that's what we talk about when we talk about the second coming. Now, we said the prophecies concerning the first coming were fulfilled completely. Those were fulfilled. Uh, The same prophets that foretold his first coming foretold the second coming as well. We have a list, as we said, of New Testament writers who confirmed the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, and also... Uh, state the second coming of Christ. Uh, One verse in every 30 in the New Testament refers to Christ's second coming. We said there are 20 times as many references in the Old Testament to Christ's second coming as to his first coming. We said that Paul is the apostle to the Gentile, and as the apostle to the Gentiles, he refers 13 times to baptism while he speaks of the Lord's return 50 times. And so we began, we, we, we spent some time talking about the second coming of Christ, and um, today, or tonight, I want to talk on this subject, the time of the second coming. We talked about the fact of it, now I want to talk about the time of it, the time of his second coming. Today, before we leave, I'm going to give you an exact date, time. <laughs> Okay, let's move on there, okay? Some of you got it already. Some of you are like, huh? All right. Well, anyway, we're going to talk about the time of his second coming, all right? And uh, see what we can't learn from the Word of God tonight. And so, again, we're going to be trying to learn something. I might not be quite as preachy, but I hope you can learn something. Again, we're going to try to get into the Word of God a little bit today and figure out some things, okay? Let's go ahead and uh, pray. Father, help us. We need you. We thank you for the word of God. Now help us, Lord, to put some things in perspective and understand where we belong, this time frame and how this is all going to go down. Lord, we thank you for just the promises and the uh, truths that you give to us, the principles that we have to live by as well as uh, those that we have to uh, just to be able to piece things together and make sense of life itself. We love you now. We need you. And we just commit this service into your hands and ask that you take these simple Uh, verses and thoughts and truly apply them to our hearts. May we learn something that will encourage us as we go forward in our Christian existence. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. So of the exact time, we really don't know, do we? 
Uh, we don't know that. Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 13, verse 32. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. When Jesus was on the earth, he made a statement. He said some things that got our attention. Notice what he said when he was here. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. He said, but of that day and, uh, and, that, hour, and that hour knoweth no man. That day and that hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Neither the Son, but the Father. And when he says neither the Son, he's talking about not yet. He don't have it figured out yet. I got this sneaking suspicion he may have an idea now. But nonetheless, at that point, while he was on the earth, he made it very clear that, he, that, that we, we didn't know, okay, that that's not something we're able to share right at the moment. And he says, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. And then when he approached his disciples concerning the coming kingdom, remember that in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 1, uh, he, they asked the question, basically, when are you going to restore the kingdom? Well, he goes ahead, and he, he doesn't really satisfy their curiosity at all. As a matter of fact, what he does instead in verse 7, he says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Now, we're going to learn here in just a moment that, uh, obviously, if the kingdom's around, then that means Christ had to return, right? We'd be kind of a lame kingdom without a king. Okay, so he says, it's not for you to know that. It's not for you to know that. Now, Jesus, he, he, knew the, he knew Daniel's prophecy, you know, that 70 weeks of Daniel. He knew all of those things. We find that back in Daniel chapter 9. And yet, he didn't try to fix any dates or fulfill or state anything in concrete. He didn't do that. And so, you know what? The Bible's basically teaching us that you and I aren't to set any dates. As, they, as we would say, we're not to be date setters. If anything, we're just to simply be watching. That's what we're to be doing. So at this point, there's really nothing that would prevent Christ from returning. Someone says, well, there's a few, uh, you know, prophecies maybe that need fulfilled. Let me tell you, they could be fulfilled like that. There's no issues there. Christ could return today, and he'd be well within his range. Every prophecy needed for him to come back, at least to rapture up the church, to remove us out of this place, I guarantee you, it's, it's ready to go. We could go back at any time. And that's exciting. That's exciting. So there's nothing that would keep him from coming for his church any time now. But we don't know the day nor the hour of Christ's coming. But what we do know is this. We know that his coming will be what's called premillennial. It's going to be premillennial. We're talking about the return of Christ, and we say it's premillennial. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, by premillennial, we mean that it's before the millennium. You say, wow, that was good. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. And we can, like I say, just take a little bit of time today <clears throat> to point out some reasons why his second coming will be premillennial. Again, I understand that you say, well, what do we need to know this for? Well, it'll help you. It'll encourage you in the long run because you'll realize that Christ has to return before the millennium. Do you know there are people that teach that we're in the millennium now? Isn't that crazy? Where's the king? You know what I mean? I mean, all those prophecies, I don't, you know, that just doesn't happen. It's not happening. I, I'm sorry, but we're not in any millennium. I can guarantee you that. Well, we're in a millennium, but we're not in the millennium. I'll tell you that. 
Now, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Notice the Bible says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, and which could not worship the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So when we're looking at the, this word millennium, what we're really talking about is a thousand-year reign. It's going to be a thousand-year reign. And it's going to be Christ reigning and ruling. And so how is it that we know? What we do know is that before Christ rules and reigns, before that millennium begins, Christ is going to return. He's going to return before that. Now someone says, well, what, do you, what about the rapture? What about the rapture and the revelation are part of the second coming. It's like they're two stages in one. It's the, the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, is broke down into two stages. The rapture, catching away of the church, and the revelation, him returning. The second coming is broke down into two stages. We have one, the, revel, the rapture, where Christ comes in the air and we're caught up to him. We have the revelation where he comes down to earth and he establishes his kingdom. Okay, now understand that. It's important because sometimes when you deal with prophecy again, you start talking about this second coming, they get a little confusing as to the rapture versus the revelation, as to the catching out and up from the return of Christ to the earth to establish and set up his kingdom. It can be confusing at times. They're all part of the second coming. And so we'll discuss and we will make some more distinctions later on in our study. But for now, we want to focus on the fact that Christ is going to return before the millennium, pre-millennial return of Christ. And that's very important to understand as we move forward in our study as well as even in the Word of God. Now, I want to give you some proofs of this. Some proofs of this. Now, let me give you a very brief timeline, and you probably know it because I do this from time to time. We have, of course, the church age. Then there's going to be the rapture of the church. Guess what that is part of? The second coming. That's right. See, you learn so quickly. And then there'll be that seven-year tribulation, and there'll be the revelation. Guess what that's part of? The second coming. That's right. Isn't this amazing? You are absolutely phenomenal students. So then at that point, we then have a couple of things that will take place, and we'll talk about a few of them, but then comes the millennium. We are saying that Christ's coming is before the millennium, not after the millennium. Post-millennialism. You may never have heard that. 
It's a thing. Crazy, but it's a thing. Okay, so we're learning the Bible and we're understanding that Christ's return is premillennial. Why is it premillennial? Let me give you a couple reasons. First of all, when Christ comes, he's going to raise the dead. Look at Revelation chapter 20 again. We're already there. Look at verses 4 and 5. Notice what he says here in verses 4 and 5. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, I think it's important to note again, what we're talking about are some tribulation saints here. We're reading about these tribulation saints. Now, we know that when Christ returns for us, we're raptured out. We're resurrected. But then seven years later, before this big thing takes place, there's going to be tribulation saints that will be also resurrected. There's Old Testament saints, if they did not, were not resurrected back when Jesus rose and we saw some of them walking through the streets or at least were recognized by family and friends, if not all were, then they too will be resurrected. Why? Because the Bible gives us the indication that these saints will ultimately be in the millennium that they're actually going to be there. The righteous dead includes the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saint, the tribulation saint. And guess what? If there's a resurrection, then that resurrection has to take place before the millennium. So they have to be raised before the millennium. Because it's, there can be no millennium before Christ comes then. So see, if there have to be resurrected before they, the millennium begins, then Christ has to return because nobody's resurrected till he comes. So, so these, you and I, New Testament saints, the tribulation saints, Jesus has to come back or we're not resurrected. And yet they're the saints that ultimately are going to rule and reign with Christ in the millennium. So Jesus has to come back before the millennium. He just has to. Number two, when Christ comes, he's going to separate the tares from the wheat. Now, I want you to turn to Matthew 13 again, this time verse 40. Notice in that last passage as you're moving there, just, he says, the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. We're not probably going to address that right now, but you know who the, the opposite of the righteous dead are? The wicked dead. Those that failed to receive Christ, those that rejected the Lord, whether it be his means by which to be saved, the old, the new, the millennium, or the, res, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the tribulation, it doesn't matter. Those that did not do things God's way, guess what? They're considered wicked dead. And you know what? They'll be resurrected prior to or after, we're going to see after the millennium. A thousand years later, that's what the Bible teaches us. The rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. So the righteous dead are raised prior to the millennium. The wicked dead are raised after the millennium. 
So the righteous dead are raised to rule and reign with Christ. Old Testament, New Testament, tribulation saints resurrected at Christ's return. They rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And then the wicked dead are resurrected so that they can stand before God at a judgment called the great white throne judgment where they will then die again after being resurrected. The second death. So when Christ comes, he'll raise the dead. But number two, when Christ comes, he'll separate the tares from the wheat. Again, in Matthew Matthew chapter 13, verse 40, the Bible says, And therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out his kingdom, uh, gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the Son of the kingdom uh, in the kingdom of their Father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now again, we have the separation of these tares and wheat. We know that according to the word of God that the tares and the wheat are growing together. We understand that because we see it in the parables. Here in chapter 13, we have the parable. And, and they're growing together. Someone comes and says, hey, should I take the tares out? Should I separate the tares from the wheat? Oh, don't do that. They look so much alike that you possibly would take up, say, one of the, some of the wheat. We want to protect the wheat. We want to keep the wheat. However, the separating of the tares and wheats becomes more clear as you come closer to the end of the age. As they grow a little more, as they get a little bit more uh, mature, these different tares and wheat, you can tell the difference. It's a little bit more obvious which are tares and which is wheat. And so at the end of the age, he's going to go ahead and send his angels and they're going to gather up the wheat and the tares. He's going to separate them finally. Seeing that the millennium is characterized as being a righteous kingdom. The separation of tares and the wheat then has to take place before the millennium. If it didn't, then that means the tares and the wheat would be both in the millennium. But see, the interesting thing is, again, once again, there can be no millennium then until Christ comes because it's when Christ comes back that there'll be a separation of the wheat and tares. That's when he'll make that distinction. That's when the separation will come. Those Wheat will go on through, the tares won't. Because the kingdom's a righteous kingdom, this millennial kingdom. Christ will rule and reign with a rod of iron. It's not a perfect kingdom. Because we know that Satan will be loosed at the end of it, and he'll go about deceiving the nations. The difference between us and that day is simply this, that Satan himself will be placed, uh, it will be bound And therefore, there'll be nothing to ignite that old nature that we have. It won't be ignitable. And you'll have God, the Lord Jesus Christ, ruling on the throne saying, okay, go ahead and step out. I got a rod of iron here to bring you back into place. You don't want me to nail you with that thing. So people will obey God just for fear of God. And then when Satan is loosed, He's going to go about deceiving the nations and he is going to work on that old nature again. He's going to light it on fire and people are going to rebel against God and against God's people again. 
Just like they rebelled prior to Christ's coming, they'll rebel now that he is there, even though he's on the throne. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? But the separation of the wheat and tares must take place before the millennium because the millennium is a righteous kingdom. Therefore, Christ must return before the millennium. Does that make sense? I hope so. It's a lot, huh? Let me give you another one just to make it even more clear. <laughs> or confusing. When Christ comes, Satan will be bound. When Christ returns, when he comes, he's going to bind Satan. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. We've looked at this passage as well already, but notice what it says. <clears throat> and I saw an angel come down. Now, let me direct your attention to chapter 19 real quick. Chapter 19 is the chapter that we look to that points out the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in chapter 4 of Revelation, we see John going up and out. And that's a picture of the church being raptured out. But now we see in chapter 19, we see the revelation, Jesus Christ returning. And so we note that, and, and all of a sudden now, we're going to see here in chapter 20 that as soon as Christ returns and some things have transpired here in his return, there's a battle that takes place. The Bible says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he, had, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. He bound him a thousand years. He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Boy, that thousand years is big time in this. You see that word, a thousand years, a thousand years. Satan is going to be, is going to be bound. That's what the Bible teaches us. And he's going to be bound a thousand years. I wonder if any of us can imagine, can you, can you guess what would be taking place for a thousand years while he's bound? The millennium. So before Christ returns, excuse me, before Satan is bound, Christ has to return then. Because he can't be, he's going to be bound for that thousand year millennium. So Christ has to return then, before the millennium, in order to bind Satan. You say, when is Christ coming back? I can't set a date, but what I know is it's premillennial. It's before the millennium. And it's before the millennium because we know Christ is going to raise the dead before the millennium. We know that Christ is going to come and separate the tares from the wheat before the millennium. We know that Christ is going to bind Satan before the millennium. Number four, though, another reason. When Christ comes, the Antichrist is going to be destroyed. The Antichrist will be destroyed. Turn, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7.
The Antichrist must be destroyed before the millennium, according to the word of God. Therefore, there can be no millennium until Christ returns. Notice what the Bible says here in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked be revealed. When he's talking about the wicked, it's talking about Satan, or in this case, his superman, Antichrist. He'll be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his, his what? His coming. He's going to destroy him with the brightness of his coming. Again, the Apostle Paul speaking to the church at Thessalonica, and he's pointing out this return of the Lord, and he's saying, now listen, he's coming back. That wicked one will be revealed. And what, he'll, he goes, he's, what he's trying to express to them is that you're going to be gone already. He who now letteth will let. The Holy Spirit will have been taken out of the way. The only one that's holding back evil right now, the only force that's keeping it from having full reign in our world is the Holy Spirit of God. And guess where the Holy Spirit of God dwells? In you and I. So guess what? We've been taken out then. And it's when we're taken out that this, this mystery of iniquity begins to come to fruition and all of a sudden now the, the, the Antichrist is revealed and he begins to take authority and power like never before. Here he is now. He's on the throne, so to speak. He's telling them you'll get the mark of the beast. He's telling them you can't worship, you, you can't worship God. You've got to worship me. I mean, he's losing his mind over here. And the Bible says, and then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The mystery of iniquity. You say, what is that? That is Satan made flesh. You say, what? Yeah, we're talking about the Antichrist. The Antichrist is Satan incarnate. That's who he is. You say, I don't get that, and that makes no sense. Well, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll show you what I mean. I think I'll show you by showing you uh, the, the uh, I don't know how you want to call it, the, the anti-type of this. The anti is really the positive type. It's the good type. Watch what the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Because, see, you've got to understand, Satan is always the greatest imitator of all. He's imitating everything. He's always trying to imitate God. Look what happens here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery, there's that word again, mystery of godliness. Now stop right there for just a second. That sounds very similar to the mystery of, in this case, it's iniquity though. So you have the mystery of godliness, but then you also have the mystery of iniquity. Now what is the mystery of godliness? According to the passage, the mystery of godliness was God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. There's the mystery of godliness. So the mystery of iniquity is none other than literally Satan becoming flesh. See, see how the Bible puts this together. Now as was mentioned, when the Lord returns, the Antichrist is to be destroyed he says, shall be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, we see Christ returning. And the Bible says, and the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast. The beast, the false prophet. You have Satan, the beast, 
and the false prophet. You have Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You have a satanic trinity. He's always trying to imitate God. In this particular case, Antichrist and this false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire, the Bible says at this point. We know that's not where Satan will be. We've already discussed Satan. He's going to be bound and placed into the bottomless pit, and he'll be loosed again after a thousand years. But no, not the beast. Not the Antichrist, the beast. He's going to be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. The Bible says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophets that wrought miracles before him, with, with, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. I think it's very imperative and important to understand that these people will be deceived. Listen, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. I'm telling you, we are going to see things like Egypt again. Rods turning to serpents. Water turning to blood. Miracles like Christ performed will be done in the power of satanic power. I believe without a doubt, I am convinced of this. It, I, I personally believe that, and I don't know if he's literally going to rise, but I believe in the middle of the tribulation, when the Bible says that the Antichrist receives, uh, that, that, that he receives a, 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 uh, a wound, I believe it appears at least, at least appears as though he died and resurrected. Whether he actually died and his heart stopped and his body, I don't believe that in that sense, but I believe that he will appear to have been dead and people will say he rose from the dead. He's always imitating the Lord, right? And then the second half of the tribulation will kick off. The great tribulation. So Antichrist must be destroyed before the millennium. Therefore, there can be no millennium until Christ comes back. Now, what we've learned is basically this, that there's going to be the church age and there's going to be a resurrection that takes place. The resurrection has to take place before the millennium because those that are resurrected are the righteous dead. The righteous dead will go into the millennium and rule and reign with Jesus Christ. The righteous dead include us, the church age. It includes those martyrs and those that died during the tribulation. It most likely includes Old Testament saints as well. And they will enter into the millennium. So, there can be no millennium until Christ returns. We talked about the wheat and the tares must be separated before the millennium. Therefore, Christ must return before the millennium. We noted as well that Christ, when he comes, will bind Satan. 
Well, he binds them before the millennium. Therefore, no millennium can take place till Christ returns. And finally, we noted that when Christ comes, the Antichrist will be destroyed. And of course, that has to happen before the millennium. So, Christ has to come before the millennium. You and I are commanded then to watch and to wait for the return of Christ. That's what we're commanded to do. Turn, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we kind of bring this down and we start to narrow it down now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> there are other verses we could look at, but notice what it says here. It says, but of the times, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. If that sounds vaguely familiar, like Matthew chapter 25, you are right, or 24, you are right, I should say. Again, remember, there's two stages to the return of Christ or the second coming. And so what we're finding here is that they can often apply to both even. In this case, we're going to see that he's coming like a thief in the night. We're not going to know when he shows up. But ye, brethren, verse 4, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are the children of light and the children of the day. We're not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. It'd be crazy, wouldn't it, to think that if Christ wasn't going to return till after the millennium, there'd be a whole thousand years that we still are waiting around. It makes no sense to be watching if we got a, a thousand years to wait yet. See, the only thing that stands between Christ's Coming back is the father going, go get him, son. I mean, there's nothing holding him back. We're ready to go here. We got to keep our eye on the sky. We got to keep watching. And the Bible says to be sober. That means serious-minded. Again, why are we to be serious-minded? Why is it in these days when we're not sure Christ could come back at any moment and, they've been, and you say, yeah, but they've been saying that forever. Be careful because that's sounding a lot like that prophecy in Peter where people are going, oh, where's the sign of his coming? We've heard that forever. He said, listen, as believers, you need to keep your eye on the sky. You need to be watching. And he goes on to say, and be sober, be serious-minded. Why? I'll tell you why. Jesus gives us the answer in John chapter 9, verse 4. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. We are children of the day. We have work to do. It is not for us to relax and to take it easy over these next few years as we wait for Christ's return. I'm going to coast. I'm going to cruise through this. I'm just going to get by. I'm just going to do my best to stay under the radar. That's not what God intends for us. We have work to do. We are children of the day. There is coming a day when no work will be able to be done. Can I tell you, it's not yet. 
We only have so much time. We only have so many opportunities. Be sober. Be serious-minded. Recognize the fact that Christ could come at any time. We don't know when. We do know it'll be before that millennium. Premillennial return of Christ. But we don't know exactly when. We need to be serious-minded, sober-minded. We need to really be looking for the return of Christ and watching all the time. You know, that ought to consume us. I mean, we really ought to be thinking about that constantly and continually. You know what I believe? I believe right now, if I was sitting in jail, being beaten up and persecuted for my faith, I'd probably be thinking about that more. If my husband or my family was being persecuted, hurt, and harmed because of our faith in Christ, I think I'd be thinking about that more. We've gotten so comfortable in America that we have forgotten that he could come back at any moment. We enjoy our lives way too much, don't we? I mean, let's be honest. We all enjoy the comforts that America provides us. And I'm not saying that I don't. Listen to me. I'm just as guilty as anybody. And I'm just telling you, materialism and all the things in this world have made us kind of lose sight and, and be distracted from the reality that Christ could come back at any moment and that there is a work that needs to be done. We need to be watching and sober. There's only so much time and only so many opportunities. May God help us, all of us, to remember that Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming again. He came the first time, he'll come the next. He kept his word once, he'll keep it again. He's coming back. And when he comes back, we need to be ready. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for just the simplicity of your word. We thank you for just the, the, the way that you give to us the, the, the information we need to give us hope and help. And Lord, it's so encouraging to know that, Lord, you're coming back. You've made it very clear in your scriptures you're coming back. Matter of fact, you told us many things you're going to do before you, even, before, before you even begin your reign. When you come back, you're going to take care of some business. You're going to deal with situations. You're going to work through the problems and prepare us and ready our world for a thousand years where you'll be on the throne. Bless us now. We need you. Help us to be watching and to be sober, to truly be serious about our time that we have left here on earth, to give to you our best, and to be busy about your work, knowing that we only have so much time and only so many opportunities. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed as the music plays. You come.